Hey, up, Sassnacks. It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week, I'm here to discuss 408 Wilmington. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassnack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassnack Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander Season 6 and 7, any projects going on by the cast and crew, as well as Diana Gabaldon's newest book, Go Tell the Bees That I'm Gone. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into 408 Wilmington. Right, guys. Wilmington. A heck of an episode. Not one that gets a lot of credit, I feel like, in the Outlander circle, probably because of the sexual assault at the end. Very unfortunate set of circumstances. But in the books, nonetheless, and I know there's arguments to be had about whether that constitutes it being in the show. Like, do we really have a obligation to show what's in the books, or should we be more sensitive to? what we're showing on the screen. So I felt like with that being said, this episode did a great job being respectful to all parties involved. But before we get to that set of topics, let's talk about some of the rising action in this episode. Honestly, I kind of felt like Jamie and Claire's portion of the episode was sort of superfluous in a lot of ways. I know that sounds really ridiculous because Jamie and Claire are the heart's blood of this series. Outlander wouldn't be what it is without Sam Hewen and Katrina Balfe and their wonderful, wonderful characters that Diana Gabaldon created. However, I felt like the biggest chunk of this episode was for Brianna and Roger, and I feel like maybe that's why a lot of Outlander fans don't necessarily care for it, but honestly, I felt like if you if you pay really close attention to this episode and you really watch the nuances of Rick Rankin and Sophie Skelton's acting, you really start to get a feel for who these characters are as people and their motivations and what makes them tick. I did respect that part of this episode because I think especially for these two characters up until this point, like... Last episode was sort of a coming out party for Brianna, and I think it threw her from a supporting role to a lead role, but I think that what she was dealing with last episode was sort of remnants of a past life, and then when we get to Wilmington, it is more her and Roger and who they are now and the situation that they're in because they have traveled back in time 200 years And they're carving a new way for themselves. And I think that's where this episode really comes in. That's where the story starts for them. So as much as last episode was kind of getting some background and getting the audience used to seeing them on the screen more often, I think that this episode, Wilmington, was more so their coming out party of a sorts. But before we get to the Brie and Roger portion of this episode, I do want to take a moment to talk about... Jamie and Claire's situation a little bit because I th- I feel like it could have been cut out of the episode and we really wouldn't have missed that much. It wouldn't have changed our perspective on what's going on in the show at all. 
honestly, I don't know whether that's me as a book reader talking because, yeah, I I just don't think that it would have mattered, to be quite honest. I guess we'll leave it at that because I don't want to ramble. But seeing as they did see it was fit to keep it in the show, we will go ahead and digest what we did see. So it was really just Jamie and Governor Tryon butting heads for the million gajillionth time. And it was testing Jamie's quick thinking and his ability to weasel himself and Murta out of a tight stick. Honestly, there was a point in this episode where they are sitting there watching the play. Jamie has just found out that Tryon is planning on arresting Murta and several of the other regulators when they rob a coach carrying taxes to the city of New Bern. And Jamie is sitting there just thinking and kind of half listening to the play and the part of the play that they chose to have going while they were showing Jamie thinking about what he was going to do, I thought was very poignant. And for those of you that didn't really hear what was going on in the play, I kind of paused it and did closed captioning so that we could get the full quote. And it says, can he bid chaos nature's rule dissolve? Can he deprive mankind of light and day and turn the seasons from their destined course? Can he do all of this and be a god? So when I break down what this quote means, I think it's really telling of what Jamie is internalizing at the moment. And I think that's why you get that kind of aha moment in his eyes where he he's kind of relating back to what's going on around him. And I think we all do that, you know, when we're driving down the road and like randomly pretending that we're in the music video for the song we're listening to. And don't pretend you don't ever do that because I know everybody does it. It's okay to admit that you do that. But I think that's kind of what Jamie's doing. But in a context where he's like, all of a sudden kind of comes back into listening to the play and he's like, oh, yeah, that's kind of relevant. I think That happens a lot when you're reading Shakespeare, honestly. Why else would we have so many cultural references to plays that were written so long ago? So I think in this quote, Jamie is really, he's seeing what Governor Tryon is capable of in the fact that can he deprive mankind of light and day and turn the seasons from their destined course, but also in turning seasons from the destined course He's also thinking about himself. And if I interfere in this, can I somehow save Myrta? Putting aside the fact, can he do all of this and be a god? It kind of brings a level of question to it that is echoed in what Brianna and Roger are talking about later on in the episode. When Brianna is really pissed off because Roger didn't tell her about the obituary and he says... Brianna, we have this gift, but we cannot be the arbiters of who lives and who dies or else we would save all of our loved ones. So that is one of the many parallels that kind of stuck out at me in this episode because I was thinking, wow, that was a very underwritten thing that's in there that I had never noticed in the millions of times that I've watched this episode But it's definitely in there. And I think that is one thing that's safe to say about the show Outlander is that nothing ever happens by circumstance. There was a very critical point where they decided we're going to put this quote happening in the play right at the time that Jamie decides that he's going to do something and he has a plan to save Myrta. 
Thought I'd point that out for those of you that had never noticed it before because it really stuck out this time. So much so that I rewound it and wrote it down because I'm a nerd like that. (laughs) After Jamie makes the decision to move forward with his plan, he elbows poor Mr. Fanning in the ribs and (laughs) sends him into paroxysms of pain and agony and god i can't imagine like oh god that had to hurt um and i love how he looks at claire and he's like i haven't killed the man have i <laughs> like oops i guess uh too late to turn back now you know of course it all turns out good and everything i kind of felt like one of my questions that i asked you guys in the listener comments thread this week was do you think that claire's doctor performance was um, a, a bit melodramatic. And of course, everybody's like, Claire's always melodramatic. What are you talking about? And it's so true. But I think that this time she does it intentionally to buy Jamie time because she promised him she'd buy him as much time as she could and keep Governor Tryon distracted. And I think in the end, it ends up winning her a lot of respect, not only from the people that are there, but definitely from Governor Tryon. You know, he was the guy that was like, oh, come on now. Let's go get a real surgeon. Like, she's a woman. What more could she do? He even says to Jamie, you said she was a healer. This is a bit different than potions. You know, Jamie's like, no, she's very skilled. It'll be okay. And by the end of the the whole thing, he says, I believe you may have saved his life. And when the physician arrives, he says, you know, the lady has it in hand. So I think she's earned a measure of trust from Tryon, even to the fact that he says... I'm starting to understand why your husband says he can't live without you out in the wilderness. And it's so true. Like the amount of times that Claire has probably saved Jamie's life, it's just countless times. So um, I'm glad that Governor Tryon was starting to see that by the end of this episode that Claire, just because she's a woman, doesn't mean that she's any less capable than a man and in fact is probably more capable because of her knowledge and skill however probably the coolest part of this episode and it's not something that was in the books so i know some people kind of struggle with it but on the whole i don't think it has a a huge impact into the future of the show is the appearance of martha and george washington I thought that it was very well placed that they just happened to be at this play. And I know it's one of those things where some people think that it's too suspect, like it's too coincidental that this couple happens to be there. But in reality, spoiler alert, but the Washingtons, especially George Washington, do come into the story later on. So the seeds that are being planted here are going to come back into effect if we get on into later books with the seasons. I know it's been renewed for season seven, TBD on whether we're going to get a season eight, but the Washingtons will come back into it. So I thought that it was good that the seed was planted here and that when push comes to shove, we're going to see, oh, this is where that thread weaves in just a little bit. Now, whether it's going to bite Jamie in the ass or whether it's going to be a good thing, is anyone's guess. I'm not going to go that far, but I do think that it was kind of clever that they threw it in here. And Claire is such a little nerd and she's like, oh, chopping down cherry trees, (laughs) which isn't true. I mean, anybody that knows anything about history knows that that story that we all learn in first grade about George Washington chopping down cherry trees is a complete load of fiction and there's nothing truthful to it. I mean, yeah, I'm sure he chopped down lots of trees as a youth in Virginia, but yeah, I... 
it's not true, but that's kind of the myth and legend of George Washington, right? And so, of course, naturally, that's where Claire's mind would go when she's nerding out about the man standing in front of her. And Jamie's like, you know, I don't understand what's so impressive about this guy. And she's like, uh, he's probably going to be the most famous American to ever live. And he will be the first leader of this country. He's famous for uh, earning um, the Americans their freedom. So, yeah, he probably is one of the most famous Americans to ever live. And I don't really blame Claire for geeking out just a tiny bit because if I were to go back in time and I met George Washington, me, like Brie, I would have a million questions for him. Like, how do you put the weight of an entire country on your shoulders? Like, where do you get that strength and courage from? I mean, I find the man absolutely fascinating. And if you guys ever get a chance, there's this three-part documentary that the History Channel did called Washington. And it really is phenomenal. It gives you an insight into how his career wasn't all sunshine and roses. And in fact, his first foray into being an officer and leading men was actually a pretty miserable outcome. And he came back stronger and better and did some pretty amazing things in his life. So really, he's he's somebody that is the epitome of the American dream of you can do anything if you set your mind to it. So he's a really amazing guy. And I definitely recommend that documentary. And like I said, I definitely would have been geeking out right next to Claire. I think that any person that knows anything about history or is an American, if they could go back and meet George Washington, I don't know, like if we would go with the if you could have dinner with any person dead or alive, who would it be? Um, I don't know that he would be my person. But he's definitely pretty high on the list. He's definitely pretty amazing. So, yes, George Washington. I know that one of the girls on my page, TSF Obsessed Next, she kind of drew the line. She was like, so if George Washington is in Outlander, then technically Jamie Fraser could be in Hamilton and we need to make that happen. (laughs) Uh, I laughed so hard. So, um. I can't remember for sure which of you it was, but just know that I did read that and I definitely laughed. So thank you for lightening my day just a little bit. So moving on into kind of just a tiny portion of the episode, but something that really stuck out to me was the conversation between Marsali and Claire, where Marsali is talking about what it means to her to be a new mother and how her heart is just fit to burst with all this love and joy that her tiny little son brings to her life. But she is also very aware of the fact that, like she said, she would take a knife to the gut rather than see him come to harm. This was one of the very first scenes of the episode, and I felt that it really registered well with the theme of the episode because she's talking to Claire about this. And at this point in the proceedings, nobody but Claire and Jamie knows that Brianna exists. I'm sure that next episode, when that gets remedied, a lot of people are going to have a lot of questions. I know I certainly would. But at this point, nobody knows that Brianna exists. And so Claire, she says, well, it's one of the hardest parts about being a parent. Or at least I suppose it is, you know. Um, it, It sucks that she has to hide that, that she knows what it's like to be a mother. I get that it would be kind of hard to explain why Brianna isn't there. But then again... In the 18th century in the Americas, it was so hard to get from one part of the country to another that literally they could just say she lives in Boston and people wouldn't think anything about it because to get from 
the back country of North Carolina to Boston is akin to making it from New York to Taiwan at this point. Like, it's not a small trip. Like, it takes a long time, you know? So I don't think that they would have thought anything of it. But nevertheless, this conversation that happens between Claire and Marsley really kind of touched my heart and also made me cringe. Not because it was a bad scene. I really loved the scene and I thought that that tenderness between Claire and Marsley was really great. What made me cringe was thinking about how that scene foretells what's going to happen at the end of this episode. It's a bookend that is hard to watch because it's Claire saying that she would literally have a knife to the gut or put herself in front of a bullet before she would see Brie come to any harm. But she's also saying, yes, it's part of being a parent. And while you know you would die for them, you also know that you can't protect them from everyone and everything. Seeing Bree's rape later and how violent it was, and we don't really see it, but we see how damaged Bree is afterward. It really kind of just makes it that much sadder, knowing that if Jamie and Claire had known that she was there, they're so close if they had known that she was there or if Bree had not told Roger to leave, that it never would have happened, that's what sucks. So I noticed that little bookend there and wanted to mention it as well. But I think the biggest part of this episode, without question, and like I said at the beginning, is Brianna and Roger's content because I think it really helps to bring the camera into focus on what the rest of this season is about. Yes, next episode is a fantastic episode. It's one of my mom's favorite episodes because it's when Jamie and Brianna meet. But the focus of the remaining five episodes of this season largely focuses on Brianna and Roger and where is Roger and what are we doing to get Roger back and what is Brianna going through because of this episode and what happened with both Stephen Bonnet and with Roger. It's a very key component of this season as a whole and to who Brianna is as a character moving forward. There are a couple of main points. I'm going to break it up a little bit just so I can organize my thoughts. The episode opens up. It's on Roger and clearly he's been searching for Brie for a long time. I mean, so long that he's getting discouraged at this point. He's tracked her down so far as that he knows she arrived on the Philip Alonzo. He doesn't know if she's still in Wilmington because I think he arrived a good chunk of time after her. So he's looking and looking, but nobody's seen her. Nobody knows where she's at. And then all of a sudden, when he thinks all hope is lost, there she is. But I think one thing that they leave out of this show that would have been helpful information for show watchers to understand why Brianna was so upset that Roger followed her, just to provide that background information. And this is something that I've seen the show so many times that I honestly forgot about it until I was recently reading Drums of Autumn. The reason that Brianna did not tell Roger and did not want him to come with her is because the mythology of going through the stones and time travel is that they think that your ability to travel through the stones is more so about who is pulling you from the other side 
And that's what Claire told Galus in season three is that she doesn't believe that bloodshed has anything to do with it, that whoever is on the other side pulling you to them has more power over where you go and and everything. So that's why Claire was able to travel through the stones so many times because either Frank or Jamie was there. That's what Brianna was afraid would happen if Roger came with her, that they would be stuck. She wouldn't have anybody to go to to focus on on the other side. And so Brianna left Roger with that note that he was supposed to get a year later because at the time, Brianna had no intention of staying in the 18th century. She had planned on going to Jamie and Claire, meeting her father, spending some time with them, warning them about the obituary, and going back to Roger, all within the span of a year. She was hoping to be back in time that she would never have to explain herself and that Roger would never had a chance to get that letter. Obviously, things didn't happen that way, and she was very disappointed that he got the letter and he came after her. And that's why she freaked out so much, because she was worried that they wouldn't be able to get back if neither one of them were there on the other side to pull the other one through the stones because they don't have any loved ones left, no family for either one of them. So it's a very concerning thing if you're looking at the bigger picture and wondering how time travel works. And if this is one of your major beliefs, yeah, that throws a major wrench in the works. I think that the show would have been wise to provide that information just so that the viewer would have had a better grasp on why Brianna was so upset that Roger followed her. So the next big chunk would be the hand fasting and coinciding sex scene. I loved, loved everything about Brie and Roger in this episode until the fight. And even the fight wasn't that bad. But honestly, I was just like, oh, my God, not again. Like, I'm really tired of you two fighting. Okay, like, just work it out, kids. Okay, so we can get past this. Um, I think we're so used to Jamie and Claire just being such steadfast and sure thing that seeing Brian Roger just will they won't they will they won't they is really exhausting honestly and that's kind of how I feel and I know that's probably how a lot of people feel and that's why they're not so attached to Brian Roger as they are to Jamie and Claire so I get it trust me I do get it but I love the way that the hand fasting came about in that Roger and Brie are in this hardcore makeout session And Brie pulls back and she reminds him of what he told her the last time they were in this situation, which is, I will have you all or not at all. And have you changed your mind? Because I get it. Like the last time that they were about to have sex, he just threw the brakes on and proposed to her out of the blue. And has that changed? That's what Brie wants to know. Have you changed your mind? And he says, no, I haven't. To which she has the sweetest reply and she says, well, then you can have all of me. And I absolutely love that moment because you can, you know, from their previous history at the beginning of this season, she has really and truly thought about this very hard and she loves him. She knows she loves him now, but it wasn't a commitment that she was ready to make earlier on five episodes ago because she wasn't sure. And now it's been about a year or so past that point. And she's sure she loves him. And she knew that before she went through the stones. But she was afraid if she called and told him what was happening and what her plan was, he wouldn't let her go. Which he probably wouldn't have. She's right in that assumption. But, but yeah, I loved this scene. Generally, I thought it was so sweet. And Roger 
Rick Rankin did such a fantastic job portraying Roger. Roger loves Brie so much. Like, literally, puppy dog-eyed would do anything for her. I mean, the man traveled back in time 200 years and traveled across the seas with Stephen Bonnet as his captain, okay, to make sure that Brianna was safe. He loves her more than words can express, like loves her like Jamie loves Claire. Guys, let's be real about this. The show may not portray that as accurately, but when you read the books, you really come to understand that Brie and Roger's love is not some two kids getting married because they have this whim to do so. Like it is really truly meant to be like Jamie and Claire. And so that's why I do get a little upset and I have friends that feel the exact same way that get upset when people are like, I hate Roger and Bree. They're not meant to be together, blah, 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 because it's not true. And I know that the show is different than the books, but in that aspect, at least, I feel like they have tried to a very good extent. And I don't think it's Any lack of talent for Rick and Sophie, I think that especially for Rick, he does a really great job portraying what he's given on the page. But I just think that a couple of misgivings on random episodes just compile in people's heads and they hold on to it and they're just like, I don't like Roger. I don't like Roger. Bree's a spoiled brat. I don't like them together. I don't like them as characters. Give me more Jamie and Claire. (laughs) This is the general consensus I am getting as I watch all of these comments unfold on my pages and um, all the listener comments that I get, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I just want to throw it out there that I think it's a failure on the show's part. It's not necessarily who these characters are at heart. And I know that some some writers do a better job of conveying who Brie and Roger are as a couple more than others. And I think that some directors put more energy and focus into it than others. So I think that when all of that combines into one big snowball, a lot of times we don't necessarily get the perfect mix that we need to see who the characters really are underneath. The hand fasting scene was adorable. I love that Roger is so giddy and then he goes into his history nerd default setting where he's like, oh my god, so during this time there's this thing that we can do. It's called hand fasting and blah blah blah. And he like goes into his dictionary word vomit mode and Bree just stops him and she's like, yes, let's do it. She's finally come to a decision and she feels comfortable in her decision and so she's not going to hesitate about it anymore. She's ready to marry him. And so they get married. And it leads to, obviously, their quote-unquote wedding night, which I felt they did a good job. I think that Outlander handled Brianna's losing her virginity very well. I love that they put a lot of focus into making it real because women, especially when they lose their virginity, it's not all sunshine and roses. Like, it's a painful process. And... I love that they went with showing that because a lot of times, especially in Outlander, it's a very sexy show, but it's also very television oriented. Like it looks so great and romantic and candlelit and you've got 40 year old people that look like they're 20 and it's all perfectly choreographed and looks beautiful and let's all face it. That's not how it is in real life. So I love that this 
portion of the show in particular, they took the extra step into showing that Brie did lose her virginity and it wasn't all it was cracked up to be, I suppose. I mean, I feel like it's it's easy for girls when they are so exposed to sex on television these days. It's very easy for them to think that their first time is going to be the best thing ever. And that's just simply not true. It doesn't mean that it can't be special and it doesn't mean it can't be romantic, especially if you have a partner that cares about you and is gentle and tender and conscious of your needs. But it just means that it's going to be a little bit different than every other time. So it's definitely not what it's cracked up to be on television. Let's put it that way. So with all of that being said, I did appreciate the extra effort that the show put into portraying that. And then, of course, we have the argument that follows afterward. It is messy. And I think that that encompasses Roger and Bree's relationship as it pertains to the show. I feel like it's one of those things that starts out not so bad. Like they're they're both like Roger knows he screwed up and Brianna's trying really hard not to lose her temper, but she's also very disappointed and somewhat angry that Roger didn't bother to tell her about finding the obituary. And so whenever we have these big arguments between couples, I always like to put myself in both of their shoes and see which one I would pick. I need to have like a section on my show, you know, where we do like, what's Chelsea's choice this week? But for this I really see more of Roger's point than Bree's. And that point is that it doesn't matter if Bree and Roger knew about it or not. It was going to happen anyway. And what's the point in telling Bree about it? Like, yes, I get honesty and transparency and it's all good. But Roger knew that that honesty and transparency was going to result in Brianna going back in time, which is exactly what he wanted to avoid just because he knew how dangerous of a situation it would be for her to go back. And so he made the executive decision to retain that information for himself. I think where Bree gets angry is not only the fact that he chose to keep this massive secret from her, It was also in that he made the executive decision to protect her and not let her make that decision for herself. It wasn't a consensual choice between both of them to decide that, yes, you're right. It probably is too dangerous. There's probably nothing I can do. I mean, let's face it. Brie never, ever, ever would have come to that conclusion. She would have fought him tooth and nail over it with that Fraser stubbornness. But... Seeing how Jamie and Claire fared trying to change the future in season two, like, it's almost like, Brie, were you not listening when your mom told us that whole story in the season two finale where her and Jamie tried to change the path of things for like three years and completely and utterly failed and ended up being separated forever? Were you not there for that? (laughs) So I get Roger's point of view on top of the fact that he's Scottish Presbyterian and he believes that predestination is a thing where what's meant to be will be no matter what you do or what you say, who knows what, it's still going to happen. So with all of that in mind, I can totally see where Roger is coming from. And whenever we're talking about the fact that 
the morality of it all as well when he is talking to her about, look, yes, time travel is a gift and we have this gift, but we can't use it in a selfish way. Like we can't decide who lives and who dies. We can't cherry pick the happy endings that we want. That's not the point of being able to do all of this. Now, what the point of being able to do all of this is, is still a bit TBD because, I mean, we're getting ready to have book nine and we still don't really know what the point of time travel is in general, especially if you can't change the future. I think the path that we're down now is you can change the small things that only affect one or two people, but you can't change the big things that hundreds of decisions go into making. Like one person can't change the course of history because way too many people have an impact into the outcome. We do know that much just because that's what Diana has given us to go on. But the characters, they don't know what the point of it all is other than the fact that none of them would exist without time travel and Jamie and Claire's actions and Galus's actions. It's an interesting conundrum. I could go in circles all day on this because there are so many different angles to look at. But like I said, I kind of also understand Brie to an extent because if my mom was going to die and I had the opportunity to know about it in advance and somebody chose not to tell me until after it happened because they didn't want to break my heart and I could have had some potential impact into the outcome and could have potentially saved her, I would have been pissed, you know? So I get Brie's point. Like, she has to try. She can't just let it happen just because it's history. Like, she's been given the ability to go back in time and potentially save their lives. And if you don't try, then obviously nothing's going to happen. But one thing where I I feel like we kind of crossed to the point of no return was when Roger said, well, maybe I should just go back. I don't think he really means it at that point. And then Brianna says, well, maybe you should. We're like, whoa, kids. Okay, calm down. And then Roger says, you told me about your final words to your father and how much regret you had that, you know, you can never take it back. That's paraphrasing because I can't remember exactly what he said. But she said, don't you dare bring my father into this. And it's not that what Roger's saying isn't true. I mean, Brianna is clearly saying things that she doesn't mean. And I think that it's similar to the situation with Frank in that she didn't tell him she loved him and just kind of made it very clear how disappointed she was in the whole situation and slammed the door in his face. And then he died. And I think Roger is trying to make her see. I don't think he's necessarily trying to guilt her into it. Yes, that's the conclusion that she jumps to because she's angry and she thinks he's pointing the finger But what he's really trying to do is to make her understand that, look, if you really want me to go, I'll go. But this could be a potential situation where we never see each other again. And how are you going to feel about that if this is the way that we end things? How are you going to feel if something happens to me and this was how it ends? So... I don't think that he meant it in the same way that she took it. I think he meant it to wake her up and to be like, look, you're being childish about the whole thing. Okay, that's not how I meant it. But calling a woman childish, fellas, 
Not a good move. Like, not ever. Not ever a good move. And yes, she is a lot younger than him. Like, 10 years or something like that. Eight years, maybe. She's a lot younger than him. And she has a lot of learning left to do. There's no denying that. It is out there in spades. But you don't throw that in somebody's face during an argument. You don't say, well, you're just being childish. Oh, boy. (laughs) And I know he probably wishes he could take it back as soon as he said it because he realized he stepped in some shit. It was really just a cluster. I think it was one of those things where they kept digging the hole deeper and deeper. And then by the time they wanted to try to back out of it, they were in so deep that there was just no coming back from it. And that's when, you know, Roger says, look me in the eye and tell me you want me to go. And she steps closer and looks at him and says, nobody's stopping you. These two make my head spin. Show version of Brie and Roger really make my head spin. I'm not saying it's all sunshine and roses in the book. In fact, they have a lot of arguments and stuff. But man, they are at least better communicators than what we have on the show. And I know that it's ratcheted up for the tension it gives because they think it makes good television. But in all reality, it's really just really frustrating. Like, really frustrating. And so they separate, and then the worst happens. Brianna runs into Stephen Bonnet, the spawn of Satan. I know I've had this debate before on which is worse, Blackjack Randall or Stephen Bonnet. Uh, I still don't know. I really don't know. I'm tempted to say Stephen Bonnet just because he is a predator. Like, he's a non-discriminative, will take his opportunities when he gets it to cause pain and suffering at the expense of his own pleasure and blackjack is very focused like he will focus in on one person and cause them as much pain and torture as he can but it's not like as widespread as stephen bonnet you know so i really don't know but i do know that it's a shitty situation i understand people's apprehension in seeing this kind of thing portrayed again, because by the time we get around to the last of these, it's just like, again, really? Diana does use it as a plot device a lot. I'm not going to lie. And I get where she's coming from in that we shouldn't shy away from the fact that it was a fact of life back then. Sexual assault happened a lot, a lot. And there wasn't a lot of attempt to stop it, I guess. Women in particular were viewed as property and not necessarily as people all the time. So when we see this scene, we don't get the graphic violence that we got with Jamie's assault in season one, which I think was a good move. I don't think we need to see it to understand the ramifications of it. We don't need to see that violence. I think that they did a great job with showing what what Brie was going through when Bonnet threw her shoes out and somebody tripped over them and then set them aside, like folded them over nice and neat so that they would be there for her when she was ready for them. And then they showed everybody in that tap room. Clearly, they're able to hear what's going on and they just continue to play their card games and talk and drink. I think that there was a twofold point to this portrayal. 
The first was that, and this is this is my primary impression. This is the most predominant thought that I've had as I've watched this episode, is that people are kind of desensitized to sexual violence because it happens so often. And I think that was one thing that they were really wanting to kind of nail down here in in how people were reacting to Bonnet's rape of Brianna. But also one thing that kind of struck me this time, and I'm sure it struck a lot of people on the first watch, was that I don't know that it's necessarily that these people were not willing to help. I think it's just that they're scared shitless of Stephen Bonnet. Because they all kind of looked at each other like they knew it was wrong. They knew what was happening. But what's going to happen if we walk in and try to stop Stephen Bonnet from having his way with this girl? Like, what are we really getting ourselves into? We all know how much of a monster he is. So I think that a lot of it was probably that. Like, if it was some Joe Schmo attacking a girl, I think that somebody probably would have stopped it. I mean, I would like to think so. I would like to think that the reason that they let it happen was because of who was raping her and that they didn't want to cause that wrath to come upon them and their family. Yeah, that's kind of shitty. Honestly, I hate Stephen Bonnet. Random thoughts. (laughs) It's a pretty predominant random thought. Like, I have it pretty much every time I watch an episode with him in it. But, um, yeah, he's a pretty shitty individual. So all of this leads me to my last topic of discussion, which is kind of like the bonus section. One thing that I noticed above all about this episode was the editing and the music. The editing in this this particular episode, 408, was phenomenal. And I noticed this the most when we are watching Bree and Roger when they first meet each other again. And they're having this really intense conversation, but it's not really an argument. They're they're very passionate about what they're saying and they're talking animatedly. And yes, their movements are kind of jerky and stuff, but when you're listening to their dialogue, it's not that intense. Like, I wanted to tell you, but I didn't want you to come after me. And he was like, of course I would have come after you, you know, like very intense. And they're so glad to see each other, but they're not super angry But then when we see it from Lizzie's perspective through the window and we see them like grabbing each other and jerking away and it looks like they're yelling at each other when really they're just like whispering very intensely at each other. They're not yelling at each other, but it looks that way. And then Roger grabs her and pulls her away. And really, they're just going to make out and eventually get hand fast and have sex. But Lizzie doesn't see it that way. And I think that the way that this was edited when we see it through the panes of glass and then we randomly see shots of her looking at them through the window and things like that, that really conveys to the audience how it looked to her. And this isn't really super relevant in the grand scheme of this particular episode, but when we look at what happens next episode, it kind of makes her more of a relatable character. I mean, don't get me wrong. I still think that Lizzie is 100% to blame for everything that happens in the next episode. However, I can see how she came to that conclusion. And I know that was 100% the point of the way that this episode was edited and that those particular scenes were edited. So I thought they did a good job with that. And another point in time where I thought it was really well edited was the sexual assault scene. 
because we literally get every angle of that room and every person in that tap room and their reaction to what is happening or lack of reaction to what is happening. But we don't have to see what's actually going on in the room to understand what's going on in the room. So it's a very good example of show, don't tell. That's a huge motto in the written word, show, don't tell. And I think that that is 100% what we get at the end of this episode. And I thought it was great. So to cap off, you know how much of a music nerd I am. I love Bear McCreary so much. And if you have not had a chance to catch the latest episode of the official Outlander podcast, Matt Roberts sat down with Bear McCreary and they talked about how he comes up with his beautiful inventions of sound for this show. I love hearing him talk about his process. So it's a fantastic way to get your Outlander fix. If you have not listened to the official Outlander podcast here in the past few months, they are doing their Droughtlander edition where they talk about all different aspects of the show from editing to producing to the music and everything in between. It's a really great opportunity to kind of get a behind the scenes look at how the show works. But the song that he wrote for the hand fasting ceremony, I absolutely love every aspect of that song, the way it swells and ebbs and flows around them. It's so romantic and just makes you want to cry. And that's the kind of music that I love because of how gorgeous it is and the emotion that it evokes. That's what makes a great song for me. So I had to mention it because I felt like Bear was on point this week. Wrapping up, I'm going to talk about my quote of the episode, which was a dandy. It's when Brianna says, how can I say no to a man that pursued me for 200 years? I mean, girl, how can you say no to that? Like, he literally followed you through time to make sure you were okay. Like, that's amazing. And if anybody else ever finds a man willing to do that for her, you let me know. (laughs) Um... Anyway, so I loved that quote. I felt like it 100% earned quote of the episode. And then, of course, we've got performance of the episode, which honestly, I think goes to the production team as a whole, particularly Jennifer Getzinger, the director, Luke Stelhaus, the writer, and Fabian Bouvier. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. He was the film editor. So all of them combined, they did a fantastic job on this episode, and I think it gives the show a very different feel than how it could have been. So hats off to you. Great job, guys. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into this week's listener comments. I'm so sorry I forgot to mention listener comments last week. I've been off for a little bit. It just makes it difficult to remember all of the things that I am supposed to do in these episodes. I was editing and I was like, oh, crap. No wonder this is really short this week. So that's what happened. Not necessarily that I didn't want to hear from you guys. I had a lot of great comments last week, and then I was really disappointed in myself that I totally forgot about you guys. I'm so sorry. So let's get into this week's listener comments. I didn't have very many because I don't think that this is a very popular episode in a lot of spheres, but let's talk about the people that did comment in. Melanie Wyatt says, I've watched this episode many times because of the hand fasting scene, 
Love it. But I always stop the episode after the McBree argument so I don't have to experience the rape scene. First time I saw it, I was traumatized. I had not read the books, so was not prepared for Brie to be raped. As for the surgery scene, I think the added drama was to divert Tryon's attention so Jamie could warn Myrta. I liked the part when the other doctor tells Claire the patient only needed smoke up the rear. I also liked the part about adding George and Martha Washington at the play. Thought the cherry tree comment was silly, though. Enjoyed the costumes of those attending the play. It was really great. It was an opportunity for Terry Dressbach to show off her talents. I know she loves those scenes where she can dress up as many people as possible. And actually, there was someone that commented on Melanie's comment that says, believe it or not, the tobacco smoke up the rectum was a thing back then. And then Claire was fangirling over George Washington. She totally was, but I think it's totally valid. Like, 100%. Any American would fangirl over George Washington. J. Mardell Stennett says, Claire is the queen of melodrama, always. Having read the books, I understand the telling of Bree's rape. I think it was well-filmed, but also it didn't need to be shown. Also, Bonnet is such a psychopath, he gives me the creeps. Yeah, I don't think that it needed to be shown in this instance just because they did the external portrayal of what everybody else was going through so well. I think that there's a point where... In this series, because there is so much sexual assault, you have to constantly be reinventing the way that you show it. Otherwise, it really is just too much for an audience to take. Like, I can't constantly watch a rape happen to so many different people that at this point I really care about. So if you're finding new ways to convey that it's happening to them without me having to watch it happen, I think it helps the average viewer to kind of swallow it at least. And my last comment of the day is from Tori Rudick. She says, I love the hand fasting scene. It's one of my favorite parts besides Jamie and Claire's wedding. As for the surgery scene, I think that the dramatic was well played because Jamie was able to warn Myrta and them two are so cool together. Makes me think that Myrta might be Jamie's father. He's not, I promise. And I get slash got so pissed, pardon my French, about the rape scene. I wish I could climb through my phone or TV, whichever one I'm watching Outlander on. And I really wish I could go help Brie. I was traumatized. I had not read the books just yet, so I wasn't prepared for Brie to be raped. I cried for her. It really is terrible. And honestly, I think it might be one of the worst rape scenes because of the way it was shown. It's It was just awful. And I just wanted to help her so much just because... It's not that there was a lack of people to help. Like with Jamie, there was nobody. But with Brie, there was a whole room of people out there and nobody went to defend her. It was just, it was so bad. It was terrible. I hated it. Anyway, so yes, that was the general consensus for this week's listener comments. Moving on to in other news. I'm going to start calling it that, guys. In other news is when I discuss everything that I've learned thus far about what any Outlander-related projects are happening. So, um, Sam Hewen announced that he's been cast in a new television series. It's not actually a show. It's an eight-part miniseries that's going to be available in the UK. And it's a crime drama slash cerebral thriller, I think. But it doesn't look like his part's going to be very big from what I've read. It's about this woman that shows up murdered and her father is a police officer. And... So he goes about trying to solve her murder, and each episode is where he confronts a different person in her life and learns a little bit about her. It's kind of a television version of the game Clue, 
because you're trying to figure out who done it. And I think it sounds so phenomenal. And I really, really, really hope that some streaming service here in the United States picks it up because I really want to watch it. I think it's going to be fantastic. Anyway, Sam plays the murdered girl's godfather. So I'm excited. He's good in everything. So I can't wait to see what happens. But that's his newest project. New York Comic Con is coming up next weekend. I have my virtual ticket already. And if you have not purchased a virtual ticket or don't have a physical ticket to go see them in person, you can purchase those on the New York Comic Con website. A digital ticket is $24 with taxes roughly, and it gets you into every virtual panel available for all four days of New York Comic Con, including the Outlander panel, which is going to be held on Saturday late morning, I believe 11 o'clock, but I'm not 100% sure on that. So when I do find out for sure, I'll make sure to post on the Sassanac Files social media. So make sure you are following me to make sure you get that update. It's going to be an interesting one. Honestly, I'm kind of glad that I did not go through all the trouble of getting a physical ticket to New York Comic Con this year. New York Comic Con is on my bucket list. I think it would be so cool to attend one of those big cons like that. But uh, because of COVID, a lot of the actors are in other projects and they can't get into the U.S. with all the quarantine and vaccination rules and everything like that to be on the panel. So everybody except for Meryl Davis, Sam Hewen, and Diana Gabaldon are going to be attending virtually. So there are going to be a lot of people attending. Um, Sophie Skelton, Katrina Balfe, John Bell, Lauren Lyle. They're all going to be attending virtually. And then you'll have the three that are there in person and doing autographs if you are attending New York Comic Con in person. But I'm glad that I did not lose my New York Comic Con virginity to 2021 because it seems kind of lame, honestly. Like, I think I'll wait until Comic Con is back to normal. However, I am going to Chicago Wizard World in two weeks where Sam Hewen and Graham McTavish will be there in person. And it's just a short drive for me. So I think me and a couple of my friends are going to go and it's going to be a blast. I am so excited. I'm not getting pictures or autographs or anything because they're charging an outrageous amount of money. And for pictures, there has to be plexiglass between the talent and the people that want the pictures. And I'm like, well, that seems like a real ripoff considering they're charging $350 for a photo package, like for one picture. Like that's insane. Anyway, beside the point, but yeah, so those are the things that are happening right now. Lots of buzz happening for Katrina Balfe's new movie, Belfast. It looks really good. And there's a lot of buzz around it that it may even win Best Picture at the Oscars this year, which would be so great. I really it's it's half past time that people start recognizing the talent that our amazing cast of Outlander has. Like they're so great. And whatever they do, it's not necessarily Outlander. Like I just want them to get recognition, period. I was so happy when Tobias got an Emmy this week. Like so happy. <laughs> so yes, hopefully Katrina's movie gets Oscar nominations and wins the Oscars and all of that. I would be so thrilled. One other thing before we go. The release of Sam and Graham's new book, The Clanlands Almanac, has been pushed to November 23rd. So now, Clanlands Almanac and Go Tell the Bees That I'm Gone are both coming out on the same day, November 23rd. So if you have pre-ordered the books, don't expect Clanlands Almanac to hit your doorstep until November 23rd. And with all of that, 
I think that about covers it. And I'm going to sign off for this week. Next week, make sure to join me because I am talking one of my favorite all-time Outlander episodes, The Birds and the Bees. And until then, you guys stay safe out there and I'll chat at you later. Bye. Bye.